he got prettier once De Niro got his hands on him, or his scissors, whatever you want to say. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, to get ready for the release of Kingsman The Golden Circle, we are taking a look at one of Matthew Vaughn's earlier works, Stardust. Uh, and to do that, I have a return guest. I have Jesse Lauren. So thank you for being here once again. Hey, thanks for having me, Dave. Yes, of course. Um, before we kind of get into stuff, you want to tell people either things you're working on, news in your life, or uh, where they can follow you on Twitter? Uh, well, you can follow me at Search to Find You and talk movies just all day long. Uh, that would be absolutely fabulous. Um, and I'm in the middle of uh, starting my own small business venture and more news on that to come. Uh, otherwise, yeah, just uh, hit me up and follow. Excellent. All right, so before I get into the psychology, and the psychology this week will be on genuineness, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Uh, I do, and these mix genuineness with the fairy tale aspect. Perfect. So my first is, and I don't know if I'm just uh, throwing this out to a bunch of people that are already familiar with it, um, but if not, it's The Last Unicorn from 1982. You know, it's, it's funny, on a previous episode, <laughs> I was just talking about this because we were talking about Rosemary's Baby, uh, right. which stars Mia Farrow, and I could not get The Last Unicorn out of my head the whole time I watched oh. that movie. So, Absolutely. No, she's a goddess. I mean, really. She is a Malthea. Um, <laughs> but it's an animated Rankin and Bass, and the cast is just phenomenal. It's based on the uh, Peter S. Beagle novel, and I believe he wrote the screenplay as well. Yeah. But you've got Alan Arkin, you've got Jeff Bridges. Hey, if you guys want to hear Jeff Bridges try to sing falsetto, Ooh. hit this movie up. Oh, it's dear. really entertaining. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then, of course, Mia Farrow, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee. There's uh, the one, Christopher Renee. Lee. Yep. When, like, before people really knew who he was, like, I mean, fans, film fans knew who he was, but he wasn't as known as, you know, after Lord of the Rings uh, or his mm -hmm. Star Wars appearance, and he's just so good at evil. Like, the minute he appears yep. on screen and you hear his voice, you're like, nope. <laughs> Absolutely evil, and you personify it. Absolutely. Yep. And what's upsetting, too, is that the rights for the live action were floating around. Um, I kept hearing kind of rumors they were going to make a live action, and Christopher Lee was going to play that role again. He was. He actually wrote a letter asking, I want to say, the particular studio that had the rights to it to release it if they weren't going to make it because he wanted to play King Haggard. And then he passed away. <laughs> so sad. It's very sad. Because who else could play that role? No one. Just yeah. Christopher Lee. It's like, just... now they can't make that live-action movie. If they do, I will riot, so. <laughs> I'm sure that'll halt production. Just Absolutely. one person Me? rioting in the streets. <laughs> In Springfield, Ohio. Yes. Damn you! I'm like putting up like my Springfield fist, like shake harder, boy. Anyway. Uh, so that's recommendation number one. Uh, the other one that kept popping into my head is uh, two, from 2006, Penelope. Oh yeah, the uh, Christina Ricci movie. Yep. Is that right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And it's uh, about a young aristocratic heiress. Um, and she's got this curse that can only be broken if uh, she finds like true love and someone who will like accept her as one of her own. So her mom's trying to play matchmaker and her mom is Catherine O'Hara. Yeah. And she's glorious. As always. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's Christina Ricci, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Peter Dinklage, which That's I want right. to say, I want to say it's the first thing I ever saw him in. And... I was just immediately impressed. I love him. And then, of course, the lovely and amazing James McAvoy. Yep. Mwah. Uh, even <laughs> Nick Frost. Uh, Witherspoon's in there somewhere. Um, yeah, who cares? Yeah, yeah, she's there. She has. She barely has a role. But, um, but it's so extremely charming. And if you just kind of, you know, pop on your suspension of disbelief glasses and go with it, it is such an, a sweet, entertaining, like heavily moral film. 
and uh, the color palette's great. Uh, James McAvoy is adorable. So is Christina Ricci. It's all very sweet. Yeah, that's that's actually the the perfect descriptor for that movie. It's very cute, very sweet. I think it really works for what it's trying to do. Like, it's not trying to be mm-hmm. anything it's not. Like, it's supposed to be, like no. you said, this very moral story about, you know, not not judging a book by its cover and, you know, letting, letting life happen. And I, I think it's, it's, it's good for what it is. And it, and I think the last unicorn is a classic. I think it's, it was yes. one of my favorites when I was a kid, even though that red bull gave me horrible, horrible nightmares, nightmares for sure. Yep. Uh, but it's, it's pretty fantastic. I mean, and like you mm-hmm. said, that cast is, it's worth the price of admission just to hear that voice cast, like just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, completely. But both of these movies give me the same feeling as Stardust, which is basically just kind of a cinematic hug. Okay, great. Thank you for those recommendations. (laughs) Uh, We will take a break. I will talk about genuineness, and then we will bring you back to talk about Stardust. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the Following Films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking Hell or High Water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deep Water Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So as we mentioned earlier, what we are doing is genuineness. So a lot of times you hear about this in regard to something called client-centered therapy, and that was started by Carl Rogers, who's pretty well known in the the psychological field. So in client-centered therapy, just to very briefly go over it, the therapist attitude is the most important thing. It's actually more important than the therapist's level of skill. According to client-centered therapy, there are three therapist attitudes that will determine the level of success of therapy. The first is genuineness, the second is unconditional positive regard, and the third is empathy. So, of course, we're just going to be talking about genuineness today. So, genuineness, which is also known as congruence, it's the most important concept in therapeutic counseling, according to Carl Rogers. It refers to a therapist's ability to simply be authentic. So when a therapist is genuine, you might share your emotional reactions to a client's problems and experiences, something that is frowned upon in other methods of therapy. And genuineness does not mean therapists will disclose their problems to clients. It just means a therapist will share their feelings regarding the client's experiences. And when young therapists are trained now, one of the first things they're taught is genuineness. And there's actually a fair amount of disagreement in the field about this. And I think it all has to do with levels, right? As anything does, you can be too genuine, too authentic with a patient. Because let's say you are talking to a patient who has post-traumatic stress disorder, and they are telling you a really terrible story, and you start crying, and you are having a strong emotion, a stronger emotional reaction than your client is. What that tells the client is that oh, this person can't handle me. They can't handle my problems. But if you, you know, if you're having that reaction and you hold in the tears, but you look at them and tell them like, wow, you know, everything you're saying to me right now is really affecting me emotionally. And this, this must be really difficult for you. That can feel really validating. So some amount of genuineness is good, just not too much. Okay, so the first article we're going to look at is talking about the significance of therapist genuineness from the client's perspective. So these authors define genuineness as the ability and willingness to be what one truly is towards oneself and another in a mutual relationship. And they talk about the fact that pretty much all therapeutic orientations consider genuineness at some level important for progress in psychotherapy and really helps what we would call the working alliance between the patient and the therapist. Okay, so what they wanted to do in this study is to examine the meaning and the significance of this genuineness and to look at what the features and effects of therapist self-disclosures are. That's therapists talking about themselves and their own issues to their patients. So they used what they call qualitative methods, so not based on numbers. That would be quantitative. And so most of this is based on therapist clinical impressions. And then they looked at how that corresponded to the experiences of six clients who had been in therapy. So the participants in the study were six female clients, um, 
two in their 20s, one in their 30s, two in their 40s, and one in their 50s. So as usual, they gave them a bunch of measures. So at the beginning of each of these interviews, the client was invited to talk about their background, any previous experience in therapy, and the treatment goals that they have for their current therapy. So the reason for this is this provides a much broader context for how you interpret the data that they're going to give you in the next step, which is the interview. So after that, they interviewed them. So it was a semi-structured interview, which means there are certain questions that have to be asked, but then they can kind of branch off and you can talk about other things in between those questions. So, but really what they were focusing on is the client's subjective experience of the significance and meaning of when their therapist is genuine with them and how these self-disclosures made them feel. And actually they found that in four out of the six of these cases, they found that genuineness was not the most crucial part of the therapeutic process. So these four clients experienced other processes other than genuineness as most crucial for their own healing and personality change, especially empathy, acceptance, and attention to the patient's inner experience, their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. In all six of the cases, it shows that clients experience the therapist's attitude of acceptance as the most helpful therapeutic process. So acceptance is just this open and receptive attitude towards the client's own experiences in absence of judgment and respect for the client as a human being. Now, the two other cases, actually genuineness was much more important. According to that data, the hypothesis, the hypothesis that genuineness is the most crucial therapeutic process was proved to be true. In one case, uh, it was true because of the crucial impact of this repeated interaction disclosure about this client's caring and adapting attitude towards her therapist. So this particular patient actually explicitly said that the fact that her therapist was emotionally involved and could name what was happening in the here and now in the room, instead of just letting letting her kind of tell her story, like actually being involved in it, that actually helped. That actually helped. And the therapist's self-disclosures actually brought the patient into contact with qualities and needs on an interpersonal level that she really didn't connect with before. So it actually forced her to move to take a different attitude in her relationships and and set up some serious boundaries for herself in those relationships. Now, of course, given the data, the four out of the six, they can't conclude that genuineness is the most crucial therapeutic process for healing and personality change. But the empirical data that they, they, ga they gathered here does give pretty good evidence that the clients experiencing therapist genuineness is a crucial process for healing personality change. Maybe not the most important, but still very important. In five of the six cases, therapist genuineness was a significant therapeutic process and helped to move them towards change. Therapist genuineness appears as this crucial process. And it's really important to note that it's not going to work in all cases for all people. If someone has a lot of interpersonal problems, like people with personality disorders especially, that genuineness may be taken as a falsehood, and that's going to actually distance the patient from the therapist. So you always have to take this, and this is only six people. These are case studies. This is really, really small. So it's not overwhelming evidence for this hypothesis that therapist genuineness is this really important process, but it was really important for five of these six, and that's a pretty good percentage. So the results of the study really suggest that most clients experience processes other than genuineness as crucial, like empathy, acceptance, and attention to inner experiencing, but genuineness is still a big part of this, so we can't just kind of throw that out. We have to include that because the genuineness was present at the very least in all six of these cases, even if it wasn't seen as the most crucial. Plus, it's also important to note that when we talk about genuineness and acceptance and empathy, these things are all intertwined and all tied together. So you can't just remove one of them. Like you cannot, you cannot truly show empathy and truly accept someone if you're not being genuine because then you're not truly accepting them in a genuine way. So these all these things all interact with one another. So as far as the implications of this study, the findings really show the significance and value of genuineness in communication with clients. Actually, these results indicate that therapist genuineness can be a really crucial process for healing and personality change, and that self-disclosures can be really powerful interventions. What we really don't know, and this is the hardest thing as far as limitations with research, is how much that is affecting 
client growth. Like we really don't know, but we do know that it's not hurting. So I think as therapists and just as people, I think it really helps us to be genuine and to, and to be accepting and have empathy for the people in our lives. Because we are, even though therapy is a very weird relationship, it's still a human relationship and there's still some parallels you can draw. So you should definitely do your best to be genuine, to be empathetic and to be accepting. All right. So that's all fine and good for therapists in the audience, but what about regular people. I think I think a lot of this can be transferred over. I think it's it's really important for us not only to know ourselves, but to be honest with ourselves about who we are and what we want to do. And I think that can end up translating to kind of happier lives and better relationships. Like yes, you can have a quote-unquote good relationship or a relationship that lasts while not being genuine, but this stuff does tend to add up, and I think most of us get really uncomfortable with the idea of not being genuine with the people that we care about. And I think that's a really important distinction because you can be genuine with your coworkers you don't get along with or your neighbors that you don't see very often. But if you're not genuine with your best friends and you're not genuine with your partners and you're not genuine with family members that are important to you, because some of us have family members we don't really... That relationship isn't that important to us, and we don't really need to be ourselves with them. We just need to kind of survive the dinner, you know? But there are other family members that we actually care about, and hopefully friends that we care about, and partners that we care about. And those are the people we have to really be genuine with, because if we're false with them, eventually it's you're going to ring hollow, and that relationship is going to ring hollow. So if you're able to maintain a relationship that's genuine, at the right levels. We talked about that earlier too. Like you don't want to, even your closest friends, you don't want to tell them absolutely everything that's going on in your head at the exact moment it's happening. There's a certain amount of tact that is important, but I think in the long run, being genuine fosters better relationships than just showing them the person you think that they want. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Uh, When we come back after our break, uh, Jesse will be back also to talk about Stardust. Hey people, my name is Peter and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. All right, so we're back. So we're back to talk about Stardust, of course, directed by Matthew Vaughn, who's directing, who directed The Kingsman and now The Kingsman Golden Circle. And I want to talk a little bit about our history with this movie. So... Uh, I'm just going to say when I first saw this movie, I hated it. Hated oh, it. no. <laughs> and it's and, and here's the reason. The reason is because I had just read the book. Uh, and I was oh, at this point oh. in my life where, like, you made a movie that's different from the book. This is trash. This is terrible. How dare you? And I was so yeah. upset because I, was, I still am. Like, But I was so in uh, to Neil Gaiman's work. And I was just like, this is bullshit. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> I should never have watched this. And then I watched it again, like, maybe two or three years later. And I was like, you know. It was pretty good. You know, if I put the if I put the book out of my head and don't and just mm-hmm. kind of appreciate the movie and the story for what it is and take it on its own terms, I think it really works. Uh but what about you? What's your history with Stardust? It actually worked the complete opposite way. I'd never read any Neil Gaiman and a- any? Any. Jesus. And like he did not exist to me. He had never been recommended to me. And uh Who are these fucking friends I- of yours? What the Jesus. I have no friends, Dave. Come on. Anyway, but it's, uh, a friend, quote unquote, no. Um, one of my friends recommended that I watch this uh, with uh, her kid in mind. So it was basically oh, okay. just going to be a fun little movie night. And I was like, Stardust, isn't that, that like, you know, Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer and Fairy Tale? And I heard it wasn't good. And she was like, no, 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 it's really sweet. Give it a try. So I kind of went into it not expecting much Mm -hmm. and immediately the visuals hit me the color palette hit me um you know and it was just so like like i said before it just felt like a movie was giving me a hug and Mm -hmm. i was like you know what yeah okay i'm down and by the end of it i 
was so satisfied with the entire experience that I immediately went on to IMDb, which is what I do the second any movie is over or any Mm -hmm. show I watch is over. (laughs) And, um, and I saw that it was based on a novel and I went out and got it. So that's how I actually was introduced. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, absolutely. The novels way better. Yeah. As, as I mean, I think you can say that 99% of the time about any book made into a movie, there's just so much more you can do in book form than you can in film form. I do think that it's, you're able to stay true to the general, um, I don't know, feeling of the source material. Yeah. Like the spirit Uh, of it. Yeah. I'm really glad I saw the movie first or else I would have just absolutely despised it. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're anything like me, you definitely would have, like I was, I was angry. It was it was not a pretty sight. Um, so the reason I chose this movie is because, you know, uh, Matthew Vaughn as a director is very hit and miss for me. I think, you know, he, of course, you know, made the first Kingsman movie, which I enjoy about 85% of it and then despise mm-hmm. 15% of it. And I feel <laughs> like I've talked about that enough as it's come up in conversation that I didn't want to do a whole episode where I just get all upset. Like, that's just, that's not fun for anyone. <laughs> no. uh, and I also could have done uh, X-Men First Class, but it's like part of a series and it's weird to just kind of jump in the middle of a series. So I decided to take a look at one of his older movies to do Stardust. So, so that's kind of how we got here. So speaking of Matthew Vaughn, overall, what did you think of the direction of Stardust? I didn't notice it. You know what I mean? Like it just, the movie happened and it was good and it was fine. There was no point in which I was like, wow, that's, that's organized extremely well for like the maximum, you know, emotional effect. Yeah. I think one thing I really notice is how, how much less cynical, this movie is than a lot of his other movies. Like if you look at Kingsman, there's definitely a, there's a certain spite is too strong of a word, but there's a certain sharpness. There's an edge uh, to that movie. Same thing with movies like kick-ass, like there's a certain meanness to it. And there's none of that here. Like it's really soft, not only in the visuals, but in the way the story is presented. But as far as the way he moves the camera, I think, I think he uh, he saves up for these really impactful moments as far as the visuals go. Like from like the very beginning of the film, when the camera moves from the moon and like through this giant telescope, I think that's really inventive and really fun and really sets you up for the movie you're going to see. You know, instead of like starting off that's slow, true. he's like, this is a fairy tale and this is going to be fun and bright and shiny and we're just going to go for it. And I really like that he opened the movie that way. That's very true. I mean, to be fair, I feel as though a certain amount of um, ostentatious uh, activity and, you you know what I mean, is kind of a given when you're dealing with this sort of source material and fairy tale aspect. Um, So had the direction not been, uh, I don't know, greater in scope uh, the way it it is, it would have been noticeably bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? So basically, I guess like I guess it was good simply because right away I just was like, okay, I'm along for this ride. Willing suspension of disbelief, but give me what you got. Fairy right. tale world. I love it. Let's go. It also made me think like this is his second movie after and his first movie was very much an independent film, a movie called Layer Cake. This screamed to me of like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna have a budget again. So I'm gonna throw <laughs> everything I can at the screen. Like, let me just let me see what I can get away with. And he really, really goes for it. But I think he also has an that and something he hasn't really gone back to. But he has an interesting knack for this, like, very innocent humor. Like, there is a scene late in the movie where we have what we think is going to be a hero moment uh, from Tristan, and he's like, you know, running after you know after his lady love and run smack into the back of a of of a carriage and it's a great <laughs> physically comedic moment that it comes it completely out of nowhere and like just like rips a laugh from you as it's happening and it's something <laughs> that he really hasn't gone back to but i think he actually really has a gift for it that's very true it's it's hard to do uh as you said innocent humor mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it's, it's really easy to do slapstick it's really easy to do you know fart jokes dick jokes yeah. whatever but when it comes to just like good, clean fun, right. you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to pull that off without seeming overly cheesy. And I think that's one of the best things about this movie is that it is 
you know, on its surface, it is very ostentatious and very cheesy, but like, it's so, mm-hmm. it's also so heartfelt. And, and I it think is. that really works in its favor because like you want to believe in it, like you want to root for it. And I think that has a lot to do with his direction. I think one thing though, he's not real good at and something that would make this movie a lot better is if there was more of a separation between the fantasy world and the real world, like everything looks like a fantasy novel in this, like no matter where they are, whether he's in his little township or whether they're going to this magical world with, you know, with witches and stars becoming human. Like I just, especially when you talk about like the, the kind of ridiculous facial hair that is going on in this movie, like regardless (laughs) of where they are, you're just kind of like, I wish there was a, just a tiny bit more separation between these two worlds. You know, I actually disagree. I think one of my favorite things is to see uh, the amazing and magical happen in a mundane atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So even though I wouldn't say that any of it's mundane, it is all very fairy tale throughout, but kind right. of seeing that the two worlds coexist very similarly and they're almost mm-hmm. interchangeable, but with a few rules that are changed and different. I actually thought that was cute. Hmm. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that perspective where at least that way it appears they're operating in, in the same universe, if not in the same world. And that, that yeah. can definitely work for it. But like, additionally, I mean, what's with like that hole in that very short wall? It you seems like I mean? a bad like, plan. It That's... seems like a very bad plan. You know what I mean? So it's like, it, it was almost kind of humorous and viable in that specific respect. It's like, I mean, anyone could jump that wall, dude. Why do you have yeah. to go to that specific area where that guy's going to kick your ass with a chair? Right. Like, I don't, okay. I don't get it. So, so did that, did that work for you? The whole like Kung Fu master at the, at the wall's gate. Did that, did that stuff work for you? I felt like for <sighs> me, it was just, it was a little too much. Like, okay. Like, well, again, you know, it's like, well, it's a fairy tale. I'll go with it. There was, there was not much in this movie that was too much mm-hmm. just because I immediately bought into it. Right. Cause it's set up as this fantastical world. So you're just kind of like, okay, good enough for me. Like that right. was for me, that was the one scene in the movie that I was just like, what? What are we doing? And I think a lot of it is because it's so early in the movie. Like, it's just like, you know, and we're just like, okay, so I guess as this kid grew up, this guy was training with some Kung Fu master somewhere. So now he's an expert (laughs) fighter. This is so strange. Like, it just, it also felt like somehow in this movie with all these fantastical things going on, just felt like out of sorts to me. And it like really stands out to me. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I bought it, but that's because I bought the entire movie, like from the start. It's like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Cool. I'm hunkering down. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, I feel like the little hole in the wall that wasn't necessary because the wall was so short that anyone could jump over it at any time. (laughs) That was like maybe the only thing. Uh, I don't know. There are, there are a couple of things that I was like, really? But for some reason that wasn't, that wasn't one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Apparently I just totally accept that like, feeble old men can kick anybody's ass at any point. Yeah, we, I don't know. We've all got our things, like what we'll buy and what we won't. Yours is That's a hole true. in a wall and mine is the 90-year-old <laughs> Kung Fu master. Um, I but, <laughs> but I also think uh, he does a really good job with the the action sequences near the end. I think those are really well-directed. And also, it's funny because there's a he does a great job of creating stakes. Like you do feel the danger, but it never loses its sense of adventure and its sense of fun. Oh, that's very true. Like, you don't really get tired of it. I mean, I found myself at one point thinking, um, why was there a misdirect there? Right. Like, I don't really get that. But okay, sure. There's a lot of (laughs) glass flying around now. Interesting. Um, But, like, my favorite with the end action scenes and everything was by far that, like, ragdoll fight. Like, the voodoo doll. Yes, yes. And she's, like, moving him around. So good. I, I, I couldn't tell. I was staring at the screen so hard trying to figure out whether or not that was... CGI or the actor or a stunt double of some kind, you know, or a combination so... of all three or yeah. Yeah. It's really well it was done. So, so well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you could definitely see like Matthew Vaughn grow from there, like say what you will about movies yeah, like Kingsman true. and Kick-Ass, but the action sequences really work in those movies. And this is kind of the first time it's kind of impressive. This is the first time he had worked with any kind of real budget and worked with any kind of special effects because he really seems to have a really good grasp on it. All right. So let's move to the acting. So um, in our mm-hmm. kind of 
main role, we have Charlie Cox, who would someday star as Daredevil, uh, which is very strange for me as I was watching this movie because I totally forgot that he was even in this. And okay, so I think Charlie Cox is fine here. I don't think uh-huh. he's anything amazing. Like I think he lacks charisma. Um, I think I think yeah. he's he's kind of a he's kind of a weak link, but not in a way where it like ruins the movie. You're just it helps because in a lot of ways he becomes a little bit of an everyman. Um, and you can just kind of put whoever you want there because he's such kind of a blank slate in this performance and kind of so slow to catch on to things. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, talking about the yeah. theme of this movie with genuineness, you're like, uh, duh, dude, let's get it together. Um, Come on. Yeah. But I think he's fine. Uh, but what did you think of, of Charlie Cox here? Well, insofar as the charisma, it's interesting because I actually felt that way. For about half of the movie. And then Robert De Niro gave him a haircut that made his hair longer. And yep. immediately I was like, oh, he's dreamy. I get it now. Like, <laughs> I see it. Okay. <laughs> I even made a note that was like, how is his hair longer? Like actually pointing out how luscious his lips are. Yeah. Like, one second he was just thin-lipped, regular Joe, <laughs> ordinary guy. And now he's just like, oh, yeah, I'll make out with it. Like, C- it CGI weird. lips, I'm convinced. C- That's- I, oh, it must have been. At one point, they're just popping out so ridiculously. It's like Goldie Hawn. And I'm, <laughs> no. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, he was pretty vanilla. Yes. Uh, he got prettier once De Niro got his hands on him. Or his scissors, whatever you want to say. Yes. Um, but otherwise, yeah, he was just there. You could pretty much just like insert anybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I no, think like, that's it exactly. With Daredevil, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he's better in that. He's quieter, so there's that. But I mean, <laughs> he's not, you know, anything amazing in that either. It was just like a shock to see him in anything else. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, our other main character is is played by Claire Danes, who has really. It's weird. Like my my reaction to Claire Danes is like. Very extreme. So at the very beginning of her career, I absolutely loved her in My So-Called Life. And then she had Mm -hmm. like a really kind of mediocre movie career, uh, including playing Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, which I was not Mm -hmm. a huge fan of her performance. But then now is doing, has done great, great TV work on Homeland. Like she's phenomenal. And here is kind of somewhere in the middle. Like I, it's, it's it's again another I think this is where the movie suffers is it for this to be great both um Tristan and her have to be amazing like they have to be wonderful and you have to be rooting for them from the start and I'm just not and I never really got that and then she's trying to do an accent and that's a little rough uh and it's it's again a fine performance and it's not bad it's not something that takes you out of the movie but it's certainly not something that draws you in either well, now, David, did did they need to make her British? No. Like, she's a star. She could be state. anything. She's a fucking star. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? So I was just kind of like, I, uh, I was very, very, very distracted by the accent. Yeah. Like, the entire movie. It's like, I don't mm, know. Mm-hmm. And I was distracted because I kept wanting her to make the cry face. Because, like, <laughs> the ultimate ugly cry face. No one does it better than Claire Danes. Oh my god, I just can't. So I was just like, ooh, it's coming. It's coming. Oh, oh, damn it. Man. Like, oh, there's a lip quiver. No, oh, shit. Like, it's just, yep. she kept almost crying and then didn't. And I was very upset because I just wanted the cry face. <laughs> just cry for me. That's all I want. Just just cry for me. That's all I want in life. Just give me a cry face, Danes. Jesus. Yeah. Anyway. And I don't, I don't know if it was, you know, more her performance or special effects, but I think they pulled off the ethereal look very well. They did. You know, a lot of it's yeah. due to lighting and hair color, and I don't know how much is to do with her actual performance, but I think she does a pretty good job of embodying that part of it. And it, I think both of these, this is so mean, but both of these characters, I'm like, when you're not talking, this is yep. great. But when yes. you, you two start flapping your gums, I'm like, uh, you're ruining this beautiful moment. Please stop. Oh, that's so extremely true. I mean, there were a couple of lines of dialogue that Claire Danes was trying to get through. And it's like, oh, couldn't, couldn't says, an editor figure out that she couldn't, like... This is not just, for you. <laughs> like, this line specifically. Like, every time she said, oh, that's a laugh. Or, oh, that's funny. It's like, shut the fuck up. Do you know what the word funny Sorry. means? Because it's not coming across. Like, it's like, just... It's, it's really not. It's really, really not. I would be more interested in a movie that switched the roles of Claire Danes and Sienna Miller, actually. 
I think I think Sienna oh. Miller would probably be better at playing the star, and Claire Danes would be just fine as playing Victoria. Like I just think I, th- I think Sienna Miller is another actress who is much better than she's given credit for, and I think she really could have pulled that role off. That's very true. Like Little Women style. Yep. It's like okay, you just sit there and be pretty, and then like die eventually. Like I mean, I just <laughs> I don't know. Now I know I'm what's sorry. at the top of the episode. <laughs> Uh, that's the best <laughs> yeah but oh can can i just like go on one tangent here yeah and just say god damn michelle pfeiffer okay but that's not a tangent because that's where we're going next um yes! because michelle Fe- like i you know it's been a long time since i've watched this and when she showed up on screen mm. as michelle pfeiffer with her with her youth um mm. i gasped out loud and you just i think michelle pfeiffer goes on these you know, long periods of time where she's not in movies and we just forget how fucking stunning that woman is. Yeah. And then she shows up again and you're like, God damn. And I had that moment yeah. like watching her where you're just like, you're so entranced by her and she is taking such joy in this evil <laughs> over the top performance that you need because if, because if she's not having fun, then this role doesn't work, but she is having such a good time. And I got to tell you, if that role doesn't work, I think the movie completely falls apart. Oh, totally. I totally agree. Yeah. Like, she is she the impetus is for everything gold. that's happening, too. Absolutely. She is just perfection. She is gold. I never forget how gorgeous and amazing she is because she literally haunts my dreams at night. <laughs> like, she is just amazing. But, yeah. I, yeah. I'm <laughs> Good Lord. But, yeah, yeah I, I audibly just went, God damn! Yeah. Like, no one's in the house. And she's also really good with the humor. There's some there's oh, yeah. some good moments of body humor in this movie that she really just kind of owns. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of actresses who have made careers at least partially because of how beautiful they are that wouldn't be willing oh, yeah. to do a role like this. And I just love that she just kind of dove in and she was just having a great time through the whole thing. You know, it just every moment mm-hmm. with her. Every time the movie went away from her, I was like, can we get back to the evil witch? Because she's having a much better time than. Tristan, like, boohooing about his girlfriend at home. Can we just hang out with her? Because she's awesome. She is awesome. And actually, like, to that point, I forgot about the whole, like, twist at the end. So (laughs) throughout the entire thing, it's like, you know, Rupert Everett's dead. I get very little of him. Why are we watching these princes run around? I don't understand. Give me more Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Like, it just, we should always get back to her. And the other person that I think really does a great job in this movie is De Niro. I think De Niro yes. is fucking fantastic here. He and it's is. and it's another one of those roles. Like, he's done this a couple times where he's taken on a role that you're like, wow, for someone who has made a career on masculinity and violence mm-hmm. and, you know, playing these, you know, these heavies, these, you know, mob members and all that. Like, he really just dives in to this role and again has a really great time like from from his introduction when he tricks supposedly thinks he's tricking his crew into thinking he's pushed someone off the edge and then kind of turns around and becomes this totally different character it's a really interesting balance because i think it would be really easy to go too far and this role could be could be really homophobic like it could be really hard to watch and the way it's played is like just up against that line where he's definitely a little bit effeminate but it's never Mm -hmm. he's never someone you make fun of and i love that about it oh i completely agree i mean just i forgot you know i the last time i saw this movie was like maybe five years ago Mm -hmm. so i forgot a lot about it yeah. I mean, I, I learned the book more than I learned the movie. <laughs> sure. Um, so watching De Niro do this, I just, I just want him to like teach me how to live. I, I know. love him so much. He's so amazing. Yep. And yeah, he could have been. You know, the, the scene where he's, you know, dressed in women's clothing and is in a full on sword fight is pretty amazing to watch. Uh, he looks amazing. I want to like draw one of those little hearts on my cheek now. <laughs> yes. Like he looks yes. fantastic. And additionally, like, how much, how much do I ship him and Humphrey? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, how much? Like, please get with Superman. That would be so perfect. Yes, yes. That that was the other thing that threw me off, like, Henry Cavill showing up, like, well before (laughs) anyone knew that name or who, you know, who he was at all uh, in his ridiculous mustache in this movie. The facial hair. It's not a good look. (laughs) Yeah, no, and, not really. And I think the last person I want to mention is Mark Strong. I think Mark Strong is one of those actors that can just about do anything. 
Uh, and he kind of mm-hmm. proves it here. Like he's a great villain here and he's someone, he's again, someone you want to watch. There's a scene early in the movie with the, the kind of stones that they're using to tell the future that is really well done. And it's, for me, it's all because of his performance and how just downright scary he can be in a movie that is very light and very much a fairy tale. As much as I wanted to pay more attention to Michelle Pfeiffer, he made it. He made the times that were the yes. camera was pointed away from her fairly bearable. Like, yes, I really enjoyed them. <laughs> High I, praise, I, I, fairly bearable. I like it. Put that on the listen, poster. As as, <laughs> as compared to Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, yes. I mean, everyone else is dirt. So if he's yes. like fairly bearable, I mean, that's good. That's a high compliment. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think. so. All right. So let's talk about the script here. So. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my issues with the script, and it's it's forgivable in a movie like this, is that there is a lot of exposition, especially yep. in the beginning of the movie. There's a lot of voiceover, but it helps that the voiceover is done by Ian McKellen. Like I would listen to him read the phone uh, book. So it's kind of yeah. okay. But there is like a little bit too much of like, and this is this place and this is that place. And, you know, let me tell the story of this fa- his father before we get to the son. And it was just like, okay, oh, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a better way to tell this story than to have voiceover for the first eight minutes of the movie. Uh, I mean, that's true. I mean, Sir Ian McKellen is mm-hmm. a universal treasure and he's glorious. So, yeah, I'll definitely listen to his voice. Right. But, yeah. oh. The exposition. And I mean, there was a lot of clunky dialogue as well. Like, I mean, yes. if a character says, I will not fail. Oof. Like. It's not a good dude, look. <laughs> dude, you're going to fail. Like, you literally just said you wouldn't, so you're going to. Yeah. Like, this is like screenwriting 101. Where are we? Like, it just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and I think, again, it's one of those things that I end up forgiving because it is a fairy tale. It's a fantasy story. So there's sure. certain things you're going to end up hitting, but there are subtle ways to do that. And uh, Matthew Vaughn is not one of those screenwriters that does subtle. And I think you can no. see that in a lot of his other work. I don't think it's just it's just this movie. Um, I think, you know, the other real negative, and I'm not really sure how much of this is script and how much is performance, but the, you know, the two characters falling in love feels rushed, feels forced. It feels like, okay, it has to happen, but I'm not sure why it's happening necessarily. I'm not sure exactly why these two care about each other, except for the scenes they share with De Niro. I think De Niro is yes. like dragging them along. Like these two young actors, like well, I'm going to get you two together one way or another. And just his, you know, just the fun he's having with them, I think really sells it. But the scenes where they're alone together and talking together, like there should be a, a better arc of them, like starting off as, you know, at each other's throats as they should be. He's essentially taken her as a slave, but to get to the point where they're going to end up falling in love and they have to have this great moment near the end. I just don't think they ever really get there. Oh, no, they don't. And you know, it's something that you mentioned before. It's the chemistry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like neither one of them are at the top of their game when it comes no. to acting. And Clara Danes is trying to, like, suffer through this horrible British accent while, you know, <laughs> tumbling over clunky dialogue. How Oof. are you supposed to have, like, charismatic, you know, um, like, kind of push and pull, like, cute, quippy, witty dialogue moments where you're like, oh, you're adorable. Right. Why can't those two kids work it out? You, you know what I mean? It's like, I think from the beginning, both of them were just flat out annoying. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's like that didn't really lay the groundwork for anything. Yeah, you're not really rooting for either one of them, let alone the two of them together. Correct. You know what I mean? And I don't know. I didn't really buy it. I mean, why did like that one uh, witch have to turn him into a mouse anyway? Was it literally just so that she could say, hey, I love you because you can't understand me because you're a mouse, right? Yep. Yep. That's it. I just... Yeah, there's a lot of contrivances uh, in in the story that that definitely aren't there in the novel. Like I think the novel makes a lot more sense, and granted, it gets to yes. take the time to make sense. Like this is a two hour movie, and things for a for two characters to start off hating one another, end up loving one another. It's gotta mm-hmm. it's gotta move quickly. Um, I just think it moves a little too quickly and not and not efficiently enough. Um, I agree. It, But I think the other big challenge this movie has is it's got to balance two things. It's got like fantastical adventure, right? You are, you're on a quest. Like it starts off with a quest to find the star and then it becomes this love story. And also you have to balance this like giddy level of humor that is, that it's, it's inherent in this movie. Like whether you're talking about the, the scene we already talked about, the like physical humor, the innocent humor, or we're talking about like the, the peanut gallery of ghosts constantly making comments. Mm. 
And it was just kind of like, and they were funny, but like, I think it's one of those less is more situations. Yeah. And like the longer the movie went on and the more ghosts piled up in this carriage kind of following, it was cute, but it was just kind of like, it's a little much. And I think if we stopped for a second with, with the joking and went back to this love story and actually worked on this a little bit more then I think the movie is a better movie for it. Well, you know, speaking on like the less is more, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, there should have been more time spent on watching them fall in love. And a lot of it should have been done with, I don't know, looks. Yes. Like, why don't you just like look sappy at him because he saved your life. And then the audience knows, aw, she's falling in love. Yeah, she's melting a little bit. Like, yeah. And it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to figure out that like the fairy godfather, Robert De Niro, whispered in his ear, hey, dude, she likes you. Right. Like, you know what I mean? It's like you can put those two together and kind of make a really adorable moment of realization, I think. Right. But, like, there is some really interesting, subtle humor in it. And I don't – well, I don't even know if I would call it subtle. It's my type of humor because it's fairly punny. Right. But, I mean, when – um oh, uh, Jason Fleming uh, bites it when he mm-hmm. – uh, he's got this – he's his blood is blue. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing noted or said about right. it. It's a very yep. quick shot, and he's bleeding blue. And then he goes and is a dead, naked ghost with his throat slit. Yep. And I actually thought to myself, why is his blood ble- oh, oh, blue? Oh, blood. There ah, it is. Yep. I get it. You know yep. what I mean? Like It's just like the fun little visual pun mm-hmm. that's not commented or noted on too much. It's like, you know what? Here you go. Quick yeah. little piece of humor and then we're moving on and that was probably some of the funniest stuff done yeah i think i think the the scenes with all the all the people lining up for the throne i think i think they really work before the characters die or as they die like when the first when the first death happens and he's pushed off the ledge like it's genuinely kind of funny it's it's a little mean but it's funny and there's there's some great bits of physical comedy afterwards where someone else leans over and then realizes their mistake and kind of backs up really quickly and that stuff (laughs) is It's all really good and seeing them kind of pop up behind the mirror is is cute and that stuff works. But like just the constant like commentary from these ghosts, it's just like, yeah, we who cares? Like we get it, you know, and it's just like it's a little much. And I think it's but it is a really hard thing to do to balance those two things. And I think overall, I think Matthew Vaughn does a good job of balancing that. But there's just a couple missteps here and there. But they're so noticeable because it's trying so hard to be cute, trying so hard to be funny. I want to see more of Rupert Everett, too. So you shouldn't have killed him off so, so soon. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but overall, I think the, the, the script is is good. I just don't, I just think it could have been great. It probably should have gone through a couple more edits and kind of it needed to really figure out its tone. And that's always going to be a challenge with a, with a fairy tale slash fantasy story. It's really tough. You don't want to overdo it with the comedy because then that kind of brings down the quest nature of everything that's going on. And he just, they didn't really have the right handle on it. Yeah, that's true. Not enough balance. Like the, Ingredients were there. They were not sifted properly. Yes, exactly. They were in the wrong amounts for sure. Yeah. Mm. Uh, All right. So let's move on to the production value. So I think the production value is really good. It's really high here. I think it started from the very beginning when you see – when you first see the view of this fantastical world from the field, I think like at that moment I was like, oh, oh, we're really in for some fun. Like, and and I think it's such a great way to start it. And as, you know, our main character's father is kind of transported into this world and has this, you know, this interlude with, with a princess. I think that stuff all really works and it all really works because we're seeing it through this character's eyes. Who's never seen anything like that. And it's actually a very good, relatively nonverbal performance um, for, for Dunstan uh, played by Ben Barnes. I think he's really good here and really kind of taking in the world and being like in awe of everything. And that stuff really works for me. I would have rather him be Tristan. Oh, so much better. Yeah, like, oh, for sure. He had a great quality about mm-hmm. him and he definitely wasn't very like, I don't know. It just Charlie Cox seemed a little ho-hum about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, like so I guess this is happening. Amazed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I also really like the costumes in Stormhold, like when we're first introduced to this dying king, just how outlandish everything is. I think I think that yeah. stuff all really works. I think my only real negative is the, the facial hair in this movie. I was just like so distracted through this whole movie. <laughs> These obviously glued on ridiculous beards and mustaches through the whole thing. And I was just like, you know, none of this is really necessary. Like, no, no. 
we get yeah. that it's a fantastical world by the special effects. It, it felt like just like, okay, you've taken a step too far. That's very true. And you know, all the bathtubs and like, weirdly, that's probably one of <laughs> the biggest things that I noticed is like everywhere you turned, there was this huge, glorious soaking tub, like everywhere. Yeah. Everyone's having a bath. It's a good world. Glorious, amazing bathtubs. <laughs> it's like, I want these bathtubs. Yes. They're amazing. <laughs> And I want, I also want everyone's clothes. Thank you so much. But, um, I think the first thing that like really, really impressed me insofar as the production value, I really liked the crater. Oh that, yeah. Um, That's a good Yvain point. Made. Yeah. Yeah. Like just, she's kind of lying on this bed of like molten silver almost. And I loved her outfit. They made, like you mentioned before, they definitely have the ethereal thing down. Yes. Like, and even going into that, like the rocks coming up and the trees that are seared and yep. all of that, it, I, I really enjoyed. Like all the time spent in the crater was fine. I mean, if both of them were silent, that would be preferable. But it looked <laughs> great. Uh, yeah, I also I also like the lead up to that scene where the ruby becomes the shooting star. I thought that was really cleverly done. And they did a really good job of kind of helping the audience track what was going on. So you wouldn't be as confused as Tristan is when he when he sees her. Like, we get it. We get what has happened here. And it takes him a little while to catch on, which maybe doesn't help us bond to Tristan. Uh, but it does help us figure out who this star is and how she got there. And I thought that stuff was all really well handled. All right. So let's move to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes? You know, this may be a strange choice, <laughs> but one of my favorite scenes is actually when Tristan leaves Yvain um, after they've made love mm -hmm. and he goes back to <laughs> uh, his village and he actually presents like the stardust that's right. now, you know, become of her hair to Victoria. I know it's weird, but in this like fantastic, uh, outlandish world, I loved that there was a character that still didn't ghost the chick that he promised no, himself that's to. That's true. That's true. I, I was just like, I, you know, yes, thank you. Like, <laughs> obviously you're going to hang out with Yvain because she's like, ethereal and a star and awesome even if she and actually gives accent. a shit about you yeah. like like victoria who's like yeah i guess if you bring me something amazing i'll marry you which is uh, already yeah. kind of awful and weird and she clearly doesn't she's not into i don't think she's really into any of any of the guys who are after her i think i think actually this is an interesting story if you flip it on its head and this girl that everybody wants and she's like i guess i'm expected to be married so I got to do something, you know, he's going all the way to Ipswich for goodness sakes. Uh, yeah. And she's just like, kind of like that is her life. Like she doesn't get to go on an adventure, but she's just kind of at the whim of these men in the town. It's like a teenage Scarlett O'Hara thing. It's like, yeah. Oh, you and you and you Now you yes. guys go bring me something pretty and I'll pick the prettiest one and maybe I'll marry you, but I'll really love you. Yes. Like it's very, yeah, it's very early Scarlett O'Hara. Yeah. But, um, but I really did enjoy that scene. Yeah. That was maybe one of the only times I was impressed by Charlie Cox's delivery, and God help him. I mean, maybe it's because he doesn't have much behind him, but he didn't seem bitter or mean about it. It was very no, matter-of-fact. I think it's, it's definitely like, you know his what? best scene. I don't think it's yeah. even close. Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know what? I promised you the star. Here's your star. Happy birthday. I'm out. And he also, in that scene, embodies the fact that he has some self-confidence now. That he's kind of I figured out who he is. It's there. Okay. It's the maybe hair it is. and the Goldie Hawn lips. Yes. Maybe, maybe the, I'm just, you know, wooed by that too. Maybe, maybe that's it. Um, yes. I think my favorite scene, it's a relatively long scene, but the scene where uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character welcomes the star into uh, her home and she plays yes. that like what we know as the audience, that's false. She plays it so well that even though we know we're still kind of, we're, we're kind of charmed by her in that scene yeah. and we get why she would walk in and it, you know, it goes on for a long time. We've got some obvious comedic moments with this guy that she's turned into a goat and back to human, but has still retained these goat characteristics, but leading all the way up to, you know, you know, one of your favorite scenes and when that character gets his throat cut and mm -hmm. when she almost stabs our two main characters and there's so much wonderful, beautiful malice behind that strike. Like even without, dialogue like she really embodies 
that hatred right after embodying this like kind almost matriarchal performance in inviting her in and taking care of her and i think it's it's like it's a really impressive like show of michelle pfeiffer's talent in like five minutes she's she's playing two or three different characters in that sequence and all of them are really convincing Oh, she's absolutely amazing. And I mean, I think that one of the reasons it worked, too, is that Michelle Pfeiffer and Claire Danes actually have really fantastic uh, mother-daughter chemistry. Mm -hmm. They've played mother and daughter before. And you know what I mean? So it's like I think that there was just that kind of like fostered familiarity that helped that out. You know what I mean? It's sad that they have more chemistry than she and and Charlie Cox, but they really do. Like I would. It's true. They do. Yeah. But I mean – Who's not going to have a chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer? Like, God help you if you can't have chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that at all. <laughs> um, the the other things we've already kind of talked about, we talked about that sword fight near the end and uh, De Niro's introduction, which is fucking fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I think Claire Dane's best moment, she has like a monologue about love where she could just focus on speaking and not having to speak to anyone in particular. And it's talking yeah. about how unbearable and wonderful love can be. And I think that's actually a really sweet kind of lovely scene that she has with no one in particular. Um, but I think that really works and it really kind of hammers home everything that that character is going through. I think that scene in a, in a vacuum is really excellent, but when you combine it with everything else that Claire Danes is doing in the movie, it's like, it seems it's like out of place because it's good, which is not the best, but no, that's very true though. I I remember, you know, finding myself a little bit, I don't know. I didn't cry, but I was definitely very choked up. Like, Oh, love, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's like, it makes you actually think, Mm -hmm. You know, and the performance is good. And I don't know, poor thing. I guess she's best when she doesn't have anyone to talk to. Well, I'd rather not talk to Charlie Cox. So I understand. Uh, It's fair. Point. Point Dave. (laughs) All right. um, So let's talk about the theme. So our theme today is genuineness. So as you're watching the movie again and had this theme in mind, how did you think it played in? Oh, geez. I I mean, it played in so many uh, different levels. But I've got to tell you, very possibly one of the smaller levels because he is technically a side character. I think maybe my favorite scene of genuineness or example of it is Robert De Niro's Captain Shakespeare. And one of my favorite things ever. Now this did almost make me cry, but when they like, when the rest of his crew kind of rushes in to save him from Septimus, who's like, you know, just raring to kill him. And he's in his little corset and his (laughs) little uh, hearts on his cheek. And he looks glorious and precious and uh what do they say they say like you're still our captain or like oh, we've yeah. always known. like we always knew that this is who you were and it was this idea that we would have said something but we knew it would have hurt you so exactly they let him go on pretending because they thought that that's what made him you know uh, proud of his mm-hmm. reputation he keeps talking about his reputation his reputation you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like that that moment where the curtains just kind of peeled back and the number one thing that he's going to expect and we as the audience would kind of expect is like, oh, well, they're just going to throw him off the ship now because clearly that's not yeah. acceptable. And instead, they're just like, well, you're still our captain. We always kind of knew. Right. And like, like you're not that smooth, dude. Like we, <laughs> we live with you. We know. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. But I just thought. I don't know that that really spoke to me that Mm -hmm. stood out to me when it comes to genuineness is like really embodying your true self. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Uh, And of course the other scene, there's a, there's a whole scene where, you know, fucking slow ass Tristan is (laughs) thinking out loud. Like who would ever do that? Who would ever not be true to themselves? And it's actually another one of my favorite um, Claire Danes moment. Of her going mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, I wonder who, kind of like, yeah. you idiot. Like, you're the last one to figure this out, that this this girl, Victoria, is not, she doesn't care about you. You're not being yourself. You are slowly kind of draining yourself of any kind of energy or happiness. You should just figure out what you want and who you want to be. And I thought it was like a fairly obvious way to do it. But it was it, it was funny, but again, it's another moment in the script that instead of drawing us towards our main character, I think it pulls us further from Tristan, where we're just like, how are you this dumb? How do you, how have you not <laughs> figured this out halfway through this journey that like, oh, this hasn't actually 
who I should be with and I should be true to myself. Like, this is the whole point of this journey, this coming of age for Tristan. And he is so slow that he only gets it when he says it out loud. Well, you know, and it's little moments like this, too, that actually serve the film and its audience. Because, I mean, who hasn't stopped and thought from time to time, like, oh, am I actually the villain (laughs) in the plot that I've contrived for myself? Or like, oh, is this actually what I really want? So it's like in watching him be so poor and dumb, you're like, well, I, gee, am I being poor and dumb about something? I don't know. It just kind of fosters um, introspection. You know, Jesse, I don't know a lot, but I know I will never be dumber than Tristan Thor. Like that's, <laughs> that's never going to happen. But it finally happens for him. You're like, fucking finally. Jesus. It's about time like you, you realize ring this. bells. Yes, exactly. Like, ding, ding, ding. You got it. You finally made it, Tristan. Good job. Yeah. And yeah, I was speaking of myself, Dave. Don't worry. You're off the (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I think just just in closing, what I'll say about Stardust is, you know, I when I posted that I was watching this, there were a lot of very strong reactions. Like, either people like, oh, that movie's great, or that movie's a piece of shit. And really not much in between. Not a lot of like, yeah, that was pretty good. Um, And that's where I stand on this movie. I think it's pretty good. I think it has a lot of weaknesses. But you also have to remember that this is a second-time director um, who, for the first time, is doing a big film. Um, So I think, given that, I think it's actually pretty impressive. Uh, I think they could have done more work with the script. They could have done more better work with the casting. I think there, and I think the casting is good overall. It's unfortunately, that's just the two main characters that are the weakest link. And that's a real shame because I think if you have two better actors in the, in those roles, I think this movie, you know, gets, gets good to very good as opposed to just fine, you know, but I think it's still an enjoyable watch. It's something you can, it's a, there are certain movies you have to pay attention to, and there are certain movies you can just kind of put on and kind of kind of slip it on in the background and like, oh, this is fine. I'm comfortable here. Like you said, like it's a <laughs> hug. You know, it just feels like, oh, this is, this is a fun little fairy tale. And it's not really – I don't think it's really trying to be anything bigger than that. I think the book was, but I don't think the movie has these grand thoughts of being important or different. It just wants to have a good time, and I think it accomplishes that. Yeah, I, I'm completely of the same mind. It doesn't hug me as tight as other movies that I have on on hand for like really bad days. Right. Um, but I, I'm happy to put it on now that I know it's on Amazon Prime while I'm like doing yeah. laundry. Yeah, it's right like, there in the middle. Some, and there's nothing exactly. wrong with that. There's nothing, no. you know, if you're grading movies on five stars, there's nothing wrong with a, a three star movie. Like, no, that's there's actually, yeah, it is. There's a lot of shitty movies out there. Yes, and I, there would, are. I would definitely not put that put this anywhere near that category. Like I think it's a good time, and that's okay. It's no, it's no pan. Ooh, yeah. Ugh. Thank goodness for that. Jesus, the worst way to bring us down my right God. at the end. Jesus Christ! Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> no, we have we have one more thing to talk about, and that is the movie that we're pairing this with. So we of course pairing this with Kingsman: The Golden Circle. So did you watch the trailer for The Golden Circle? It's it's kind of been I did. everywhere. Okay, so so in watching the trailer, like coming from this place of not really knowing, you know, the plot of the first one, what did you think of the trailer? Does does anything about this grab you? <sighs> It looks very visually impressive. Yes. Um, so, I don't know. I feel like, again, that's an accomplishment. That's something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super... Well, I mean, I'd probably go see anything that Colin Firth is in, really. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it looks beautiful. Yes. Like, it looks like if I wanted to maybe shut my mind off for two hours or so... Then two hours really and 25 minutes. Jesus Christ. Well, that's where the O oh or so comes in. <laughs> but like, I, I could probably shut my mind off, sit there with a big bucket of popcorn and just go, ooh, pretty. Right. And be perfectly fine with it. Yeah, to me, so, all right. So Kingsman 2, there's a part of me that wants to see this and I'm going to, I mean, we're covering it on the show. But sure. if I wasn't, there's a part of me that wants to see it and also a part of me that is just so fucking over it. Um, because like the first one is, like I said, 85% good and 15% terrible. And it's really unfortunate that the 15% terrible is at the very end, uh, because that oh. just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Oh, that's a downer. Like, yeah, me. yeah, like, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, but this movie also screams of like the first movie did really well. And now we've got everyone we could imagine in this movie. Like the cast got so much bigger. I mean, you've got Taron Egerton and, um, or Taron Egerton 
um, and uh, Colin Firth from the original, also Mark Strong. But now you've got like Julianne Moore and um, who else? Halle Berry is in this. Channing Tatum. Uh, I mean, Elton John apparently makes an appearance. Jeff Bridges. What? I mean, it's just <gasps> like, yeah. So I don't know. It just screams of like, are they going to be able to balance all of these big personalities? And I'm just not sure uh, that Matthew Vaughn has that gift. His best movies focus on a lot of side characters and then two main characters. Like if you look at like, I love X-Men First Class. It's my favorite X-Men movie because it focuses on this pretty obviously sexual relationship between Professor Xavier uh, and Magneto that's definitely there between James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. And it's about it's about male friendship, if nothing else. And I think that mm-hmm. stuff really works. And this is all so satirical and tongue in cheek and over the top that it's going to be hard for me to get into. But I do think it will be a fun movie to watch. I think it'll be visually impressive and I think it'll be it'll be clever, but I'm just not convinced that it'll be really, really good. Well, at the very least, you can bank on good performances, especially from the likes of Julianne Moore. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? So it's like... Eh, and Colin Firth, I don't think he's ever been he really bad. He really doesn't... Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. So we got that, at least. I mean, it, there are there are worse things, certainly, to see. And of course, this movie is going to make all <laughs> the money. I mean, I don't think there's anything else even coming out that week. So it's kind of pigeonholed into covering the Golden Circle. But here we are. So <laughs> hopefully, it will surprise me and be better than I think it's going to be. I mean, I feel like when you go in with low expectations, you're always going to come out a little bit happier than you expected to be. It's true. If, it, not, if, if I had gone in, more. if I had gone into Stardust the first time with expectations like this, I would have loved it. I would have thought it was the best movie of the year. So hopefully, <laughs> it'll have that effect, and I'll really enjoy it. But we'll see. Yeah, let's hope. All right. All right so before you go, one more time, why don't you tell people how to contact you online? Oh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Search to Find You, and I'm always down for a film conversation. So hit me up. All right, thanks everyone for listening to another episode, and thank you to Jesse Lauren for being a guest yet again. She's one of my favorites. All right, so the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release episode on The Kingsman, The Golden Circle. So look forward to that. In the meantime, if you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. If you want to throw some money our way, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. There you can donate on a per-episode basis and get some pretty cool rewards for supporting an independent podcast. For instance... There was an outtake on this episode where where Jesse and I talked at length about Dawson's Creek, uh, and that got posted just for Patreon donators. So whether you're donated one dollar or a hundred, you would get access to that. So please feel free to donate there. But if you would like to connect with us for free, there are many many ways to do that. You can. Go on Twitter and find us at PC Case Study, or you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Tumblr, any of those places, and give us a follow. And I'd love to hear from you. But if you would like to drop me a line in a way that gives you more characters, you can always email us as well at popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. All right, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Right. Someday I'll you know? someday I'll bring you on for Fight Club. <laughs> oh, 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 Fight Club! I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've just been um, like going through shows that I feel like I should have seen by now. Uh, like yes. I'm watching Pushing Daisies. Right now. <gasps> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get so loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like...